Hi, this is Terry McFinn. You will remember me. I'm in the corners of your mind. Pam, the girl on the meetup from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I'm appearing on geeksoftheindustry.com. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this. This picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily appeased. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person, or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance, that you and the child leave the auditorium for the next... Features, a horror discussion from geeksoftheindustry.com, and now your host, Chunky Larry. Greetings, fellow insomniacs, and welcome to a very, very special episode of the Creature Features podcast on geeksoftheindustry.com. I'm your host, my name is Chunky Larry, and I emphasize very special because uh, when I fell in love with films, it was in the early 90s, I was a young boy who would wander down the street to my local video store, and I've I've told this story a thousand times, but it, it bears repeating. I would straighten the shelves in the video store to be able to um, get free rentals, and I fell in love with the world of Full Moon Features, and one of the things that Full Moon Features did in their time when they were kind of the kings of home video is they would employ some of the same directors, and that those same directors would work on the same projects. Uh, one series that I absolutely fell in love with was the Subspecies series. Uh, it just intrigued me to no end. I absolutely enjoyed the Video Zone uh, video packages that they would put at the end of the episodes, or at the end of the films, I call them episodes because they were a continuing series. But uh, I became aware of director Ted Nicolau through these these video series, and I, I it was kind of in this time when I started to realize that, you know, it was this certain person behind these films that I loved and and that was ultimately the beginning of my adoration for the director and it's it's come kind of full circle in a sense because I in my own way have been homaging the video zones and trying to highlight these filmmakers that I admire and uh, I have with me on the show uh, a person that has literally done everything in the world of horror cinema and cinema in general. He, he's worked sound, he's edited, he's directed, he's written. Um, I don't know if he's acted, but uh, 
We'll we'll find out from him today because it is a thrill and a pleasure to say, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ted Nicolau, how you doing, man? I'm doing really great. Thanks, Larry. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's it's a huge pleasure and an honor for me. Um, as, as I said in that very long-winded introduction, uh, your work is some of the work that was really fundamental in the the building blocks of my obsession with cinema. And for you, I have to assume, maybe this is because I already know the answer to this, uh, that you were also very much inspired by horror cinema when you were a young man. Uh, specifically one character uh, that I know you've mentioned before, uh, that being Frankenstein. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your earliest memories of horror and uh, the things that mattered to you. Yeah, uh, basically, uh, I have two periods in my life that were like, that inspired me in my becoming a filmmaker. And the first in my childhood had two separate uh, kind of avenues for watching movies. Back then, there was no VHS. There was only a couple of channels on TV. And on Saturday nights, there was kind of the local horror host. And in our case, it was Igor in, in Fort Worth who would host, you know, the 1940s, 1930s horror films. And uh, my brother and I would stay up late on Saturday night and watch the double feature. And that kind of introduced me to Frankenstein and to Boris Karloff and to Lon Chaney and the... Uh, kind of uh, got me in love with films of fantasy and horror. And then uh, the other thing was my father, who was a psychoanalyst, would take me pretty much almost every Saturday afternoon to matinees at the Granada Theater in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And there we'd see, you know, all of the great sci-fi movies from the 1950s. And um, so, so that combination of of ingredients kind of like filled my young imagination i didn't know i was going to be a filmmaker at the time but it definitely was uh something that i loved and when you decided that film was the course for you the 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 path that you you know set out on did you always know that school was the way to get there because i i don't feel necessarily at the time at that time at least that they were pushing the idea of learning about film via uh school programs i know that you had went to the university of texas's uh film program but it i don't think it was necessarily kind of a commonplace idea the way that it is now yeah no back then i i went into the university thinking I was going to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my kind of outside interests at the time were, were music, and I played in bands and through high school and into college, and writing. Uh, and once I kind of got into the pre-med program at UT, uh, I realized that I really did not want to be a doctor and didn't want to study science. And um, basically, a friend of mine took me to see a couple of movies over a couple of weekend nights. The University of Texas at that time had a great, great kind of independent film programs. And so any night of the week you could see some of the, some of the classics of, of cinema. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one night we went to see Fellini's Juliet of the Spirits, uh, on acid. And <laughs> basically that movie just blew my mind and showed me how cinema could kind of take everything that I loved, writing um, and music and storytelling and kind of give you a new art form that's a combination of all of those other art forms. The other film was Bergman's uh, Seventh Seal, which, same thing, in its stark simplicity, just showed me the power of imagery and the, the way that stories could transport you to different worlds. Um, and... So at that time, I was in this um, program uh, to go to do pre-med, and a friend of mine, Daniel Pearl, who went on to be the cinematographer of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and had a really good career as a, as a director of photography, um, he and I were buddies, 
And both of us at one point just kind of went, fuck this, and kind of jumped ship from uh, pre-med into the film department. And at that time at UT, the film department was very well funded by PBS. Back then it was, you know, national educational television or something like that. And by oil money. And so the film department had great cameras, great teachers, and gave us the opportunity to really experiment. So, so my path was looking for something to major in at university that kind of fit my imagination. And, uh, that was the early days of film programs. And they basically told us, you know, you'll be lucky if one of you in this whole class becomes a working filmmaker. And, and at least two of you ended up on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so. More and many, many more. It was an, an amazing class because of the teacher, uh, Rod Whitaker, who was also known as Trevanian, the, the author of uh, Iger Sanction. He was our, he was our professor and he really was great. And yeah, so, so a lot of us from that class ended up working in film. And, uh, talk briefly, cause I know you're just, you worked sound on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but that was essentially kind of your first big production that you had worked on. Yeah, um, we were still in film school at the time mm -hmm. and, but we're working on commercials and public service announcements and things like that, because um, uh, we were in Austin, which is the capital of Texas. Um, and, um, the guy who was sort of my mentor in sound, Courtney Gooden, was another classmate, and he was a great kind of, he was the technical genius of our class. And he was a sound man, and I had boom operated for him on some little productions uh, around Austin. And at the time they were crewing up Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Courtney was doing sound on a feature in San Antonio. So they kind of took me as the, the next best, you know, to Courtney. Mm -hmm. so, kind yeah, of that like was, an alternate. Yeah, 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 it was like second choice, you know. But um, I, I had learned everything I knew from Courtney about mm. her. You know. And stepping on to that kind of set, because, you know, I've had people that have worked on Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the show, and, you know, there are horror stories that kind of, have been told about the making of that film. Um, were you a party to a lot of that stuff that happened? Um, the, the room, the smells, um, was that something that you were involved in or was it just kind of, uh, you were working kind of post or pre? Uh, no, it was, uh, that film was total immersion into weirdness and, you know, from the first day when Toby and Kim Henkel, the co-writers, co-producers of the film, um, you know, would have meetings that would last for hours trying to figure out what the day's shooting was going to be. Um, we were all just kind of sitting in the Texas heat kind of mm -hmm. waiting for them to make a decision. And it just kind of went weirder and weirder from there. It was, in fact, you know, it was like any production where there's a lot of waiting and a lot of hard work and all of that but in this case there was also just the brutality of the heat and the craziness of of um of the material uh, yeah bob burns production design made up of bones and and meat and dead dogs and whatever else he could manage to find uh it was really a difficult shoot that sort of culminated in the, I'm sure you've heard the story a million times, the 27 hour shoot day yes. that, uh, uh, around the dinner table with rotting meat and rotting chicken heads all over the place. That was truly one of the most ghastly smelling sets ever. So you were, you were a part of all of that. That's amazing. Yeah, we were there, you know, every day, every night, right there by the camera trying to, find a place to put the microphone and uh yeah it was it was an education and my, my wife at the time was catering the production and my daughter at the time was like two years old and she would come visit the set and she came to the set on the day that um that uh leatherface was hanging pam on the 
on the and in to say hello and all that tableau and just freaked right out and um, and and prior to that she and Leatherface had were buddies and all of that so it took a little while to kind of talk her down from that so you're you're working this is this is kind of i think almost like a trial by fire kind of film production would would you say that that's fair Where yeah you're you i mean it's it's obviously a lower budget film and you're still in film school or in the film program is there any part of you during this arduous shooting uh that said to yourself medical school sounding a little bit better now <laughs> No, actually not. It, it's the kind of, the difficulties of making a film are offset by the community and the circus atmosphere of it and the, the kind of pleasure of creating images, you know, and, and, and the, the, the kind of trials that we went through on Texas Chainsaw Massacre basically made me want to be a filmmaker who didn't abuse the crew and didn't, and, and knew ahead what he was going to do every day. So it kind of lit a fire under me to be better and better. And after this, uh, still working on commercials until Tourist Trap? or Yeah, basically did commercials, tr- thought because uh, there was a great tax incentive for uh, people to to invest in movies right around the time of Chainsaw Massacre, I kind of stayed in Austin thinking that we could make low-budget films there mm-hmm. and ended up writing some scripts and trying to raise money and never quite succeeding doing public service announcements and whatever else I could do to make money. And pretty soon a lot of my friends started leaving Austin and heading to Los Angeles. And... At a certain point, the scales tipped and like almost all my friends were in Los Angeles and all of them, including Courtney, the sound genius that I would refer to earlier, all of them were saying, come on out, come on out. We can get you a job on this movie called Roar. Um, and I, I don't know if you've heard of this film, Roar. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about it. But the, So I took all of my stuff and put it in my van, which was the green Texas Chainsaw Massacre van that the victims uh, were driving. That was your van? Yeah, that was my van. And like the Beverly Hillbillies kind of drove out to Los Angeles and stayed at Courtney's house and slept on his couch for a while and got a job as like an editor on the film Roar. And Roar was the movie at the time that if you got out of prison, if you were completely insane, if you just moved to L.A., you could get a job on this film. It was, um, Noel Marshall, who had made all of his money for uh, being the the um, manager of William Peter Blatty mm-hmm. and putting together the deal for The Exorcist, uh, he was married to Tippi Hedren. Her daughter, Melanie Griffith, mm-hmm. his sons, Joel and, and, um, whoever else, like a couple of sons, they m- decided they were going to make a movie featuring wild lions and tigers. And this movie is legendary in Los Angeles and, and the Animal Planet, uh, network did a documentary that you can find about it. It was basically a, uh, little compound they built out north of Los Angeles in a flood plateau, a floodplain, and um, built a little African house and a little uh, on a lake and had a hundred lions and tigers, none of them trained. And Noel Marshall, who was like a complete crazy man uh, and thought of himself as more powerful than a lion, was like the guy who could sort of manage the lions and uh as a movie starred tippy hedron and melanie griffith and the sons and it was about a guy who was studying lions and tigers in africa and his family comes to visit and because they get their signals crossed on their arrival he's gone to the airport to pick them up they've already arrived and they end up at the house and get terrorized by these lions and tigers and if texas chainsaw massacre had a couple of stinky little chicken bones and stuff like that in it uh, Roar had 
craziness of biblical proportions of Rion de Bont, who was the director of photography, getting his head split open by a lion. Uh, Noel Marshall getting dragged off the set by a lion and put in the hospital. A flood that came and wiped out the entire set and sent two million feet of work print, because this is 35 millimeter work picture that we were editing with, down river. Jesus. Took eight chem editing tables, buried them up to their tip tops of their screens in mud. And so then there was like a period after the flood of digging out all the machinery and cleaning it out piece by piece, taking the film that they could find and washing it with garden hoses before MGM would even take it and run it through their cleaner. So that movie was was truly a movie of like epic proportions. And if you can find that documentary, you should definitely watch it. Cause, yeah, and, and, I, I'm, I've already written the note down. <laughs> documentary right. on Roar. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds amazing. So uh, I worked for a while, and Larry Carroll uh, was a partner of mine in a production company in Austin. He was the head editor when I came on. Mm. And, and he left and I became the head editor for a while. He went on with David Schmoller, who was also a film school buddy of mine, to, uh, to make a deal with Charlie Dan to produce, uh, to produce Tourist Trap. And after the flood and after all the disasters, they, I, I kind of jumped ship on Roar and came over and edited that film with them. And talk to me about your earliest memories of, uh, meeting Charlie. Uh, because he, to me, he's one of the, the interesting cases in, in Hollywood, in working the systems where he feels like, like a, uh, like a Kaufman, but also very much, you know, his own guy, uh, like a Corman, you know, these, these men that, you know, set out to, to carve their own path, but the thing that he would do that was different than than those guys is it wasn't optioning other projects; it was making uh, his own films and it being completely in house uh, with Empire Pictures and ultimately Full Moon. Um, was was that a a relationship that really you enjoyed from the beginning or was he kind of abrasive because of all the moving parts that he has it seems going on since the very beginning at that time charlie was i I was a little uh i guess uh, shy of him Mm -hmm. because i was hired as an editor and he seemed like you know kind of an untouchable character uh but the truth about charlie is that as much of a kind of, uh, he's not a con artist, although he is, he's a great salesman is what he really is. And he was, and he loved movies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so when he would come in the cutting room, he was, he's like a kid who's just, you know, enjoying the work that's, that's being done. So, uh, gradually as I got more comfortable with him, I got to appreciate him on that level of just, the the love of movie making and the problem at that company um, during that period was the money was always short and you would get paid and run to the bank to cash your check and there would be everybody from the film crew you know standing in line to cash their checks too and you just had to hope that the money would hold out until you got to the front of the line so it was a it was a very odd kind of place and charlie always had a variety of money-making schemes that he was working on and the thing that he was most brilliant at was coming up with the idea of of home video that that would be an actual avenue for making money and for audiences to to discover movies and i think that was his biggest contribution even more than a than Roger Corman. Corman certainly could pick talent uh, in a way, and I think he he actually had a little more cold-blooded kind of movie-making uh, model, whereas 
generally would spend money until he couldn't spend it anymore and would kind of constantly get in over his head. <coughs> and as time went on, he kind of got a little more control over the budgets. And with, <coughs> with editing on Tourist Trap and editing for Charlie, you, you worked on things like Trancers, uh, Robot Jocks, you know, uh, the, these are literally, you know, you're, you're cutting together my childhood. And, and is, is there ever, when you're, when you're working on these things, any kind of mindset that you're working on something that's going to be a cult classic? No. Or is it just you're doing your project and, you know, then <laughs> they get these notoriety, this recognition? I think, um, we had no idea about, you know, creating cult movies. And I think, in fact, you're, you're sort of like kidding yourself if you think that you're, while you're making a film, if you, if you even imagine what a great cult movie it's going to be, uh, because you, there's so many variables in how a film turns out and how an audience might react to that film. So at the time, Tourist Trap, you know, and, and especially as an editor, you're really, your day-to-day -day focus is on fixing problems and mm -hmm. things that didn't quite work out on set, picking moments of performance. And so the, the challenges are so, um, so challenging that your, all of your focus is just on how can I make this one scene work? And then a couple of weeks later, how can I string out these scenes together so they will work, you know? And um, in that regard, Charlie's father, Albert Band, who was like an old Hollywood hand uh, who had worked with John, not John Ford, with uh, John Houston and, you know, uh, had had a career, would come into the cutting room and kind of taught us a lot about how the, the script continuity of scenes doesn't necessarily have to be respected. And sometimes... A scene that comes later maybe should come earlier in the film. Things like that that you don't think of when you first start editing. When you first start editing, you're thinking, how do I rhythmically get from shot to shot performance uh, to its best and all of that? And, and, you, and only as a kind of the next step of editing skills do you start to uh, think of the story as a whole, you know? And, and specifically with Tourist Trap, a lot of that is you know, based on interpretation of a moment-to-moment -moment situation and, you know, that Chuck Connors performance. And, you know, again, uh, one of the strengths of it is the way that the story plays out over the course of the film. Um, that's one of your first editing projects, or at least it's the first one that you're uh, cited for on IMDb. Uh how difficult is it to, I, I mean, you obviously you'd had, uh, you know, his father to kind of give you kind of some insight on an approach, but aside from that, like finding that rhythm, finding the timing to, you know, hit those beats in a way that they don't necessarily, because, you know, when you're making a film, you're, you're cognizant of the beats, but it's, it's almost like it's fine-tuned with editing and, and finding that, that rhythm to where, you know, everything lines up. Um, was any of that, you know, happy accidents? Uh, is there a moment that you could specifically speak on uh, when working on something where it happens in a way that you weren't expecting, but it's, you know, like, well, shit, this is way better. Uh, you know, I think, um, I had been editing from, uh, you know, University of Texas editing like the, the short films that I directed and had a pretty keen sense of, of editing and rhythm. And I think musicians make really good editors and I, you know, had been a musician. And so without tooting my own horn, I, I'm actually a pretty good editor and have a pretty keen sense of, how long a shot is good for before it loses interest and where, where your audience's attention 
needs to be at any given moment. So I think, you know, for some reason I had that sort of inherent uh, in my approach to editing from the beginning and it, and it got more refined as a, you know with the more work that I got but from Tourist Trap on I was kind of Charlie's go-to editor for a mm. number of years and was directing in your in your uh trajectory in terms of uh where you wanted to take your career or was it you know this is something that you know, Charlie just sprung on you and you were like, well, shit, let, let's give it a yeah. whirl. No, uh, for, for me, as far back as the University of Texas, I knew that I wanted to be a director. I wanted to be the person who could call the shots and, and, and put the camera where the camera needs to go and deal with the actors and, and kind of tailor the story to the camera and to the technical aspects of filmmaking. So I, I, that was definitely in my plan to be a director. Um, and for me, editing is the skill that, that kind of feeds into directing in the same way that writing feeds into directing. And mm. is a, is a skill that, and it's a, a kind of a puzzle process that I really love. And even, even today I love editing. Um, so I knew I wanted to be a director. I told Charlie once I started, uh, I guess by the time we got to, you know, that he started Empire, mm-hmm. uh, I told him I wanted to direct. And, and Charlie, the good thing about Charlie is he puts that in his, you kind of plant that seed in his mind and you also acknowledge that he's going to use you as much as possible as an editor, uh, before he kind of gives you that chance to direct. And so once I planted that seed, uh, about the time that we were doing um, Rage War, I guess, and he was testing out a lot of directors for his future productions by giving them little segments within that film, uh, when the film came up short, it sort of came to be my opportunity to direct. I'm sorry, can you edit this moment out and I'm going to go to let my damn dog out. out. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, okay, my kid's on. already knocked on the door. So <laughs> okay, man, I'm back. Yeah. Rage war. Rage war. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, when that movie came up short, that was my opportunity to kind of pitch him an idea for another segment, which I did. Uh, that sort of uh, slightly Road Warrior-esque mm. uh, sequence that, you know, was was really, it was a great location, a kind of, you know, graveyard of pl- airplanes. Um, but in the last moment of the second day of shooting one of the cars broke down and couldn't drive and it was supposed to blow up and it couldn't blow up because it couldn't drive because it couldn't blow up or no they were supposed to collide i guess so i had to make a decision either postpone the shoot for another day or try to make it work in the best way i could and i kicked myself a little bit that i compromised and i just tried to shoot what i could Mm -hmm. to make it work for the day but Charlie ended up appreciating that that uh, uh, production wise decision. So um, so that sort of put me in mind to do more directing with him. And one of my favorite films that you've done, you did really, really early on in your career. I'm talking, of course, about Terror Vision. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, I, that was part of the reason why I brought up Frankenstein, uh, because a reoccurring theme i feel personally in your work is that you make the monsters in your film empathetic in in the sense that you know they're they're still doing dastardly things but you find yourself caring about them before everything is said and done and uh, that's that's absolutely the case with the monster in television it's absolutely the case with radu um it, it it 
permeates throughout the course of you working on these films. Was this a conscious thing that you would go for, or was it just kind of where the film would naturally go for you? Uh, you know what? That's an interesting observation, and I was not conscious of it, actually. I'm conscious of the uh, the kind of wisdom of that the that the villains or the monsters of stories have to be equally as interesting and equal and equally or more powerful than the than your uh, than the people of mm-hmm. the film. Uh, and so and I, that's I mean that's interesting because the television monster was. Yeah, you sympathize with him because he's just an old house pet. You yeah, know, from just a, like a puppy that got loose. Uh, yeah, no, that's a that's a good a good observation, you know. And and the, with Radu and subspecies, if we can jump ahead for a second, he, uh, I think he came to be more sympathetic because of the man who played him, the Honest Hove, brought a lot to that character that. Um, and, and then as I scripted him in parts two and three, we kind of explored more of his weaknesses and, and needs. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great observation. And you would, uh, I could actually, we could actually just get into subspecies and I almost jumped into it when we were talking about, uh, your desert pursuit, uh, sequence in, uh, rage war. But I, one of the things that really, hits home for me especially in uh subspecies is the authenticity of the environments you you actually working in romania um really and i i um i don't know if you've i tagged you in them on instagram i've been reviewing the subspecies films just kind of doing short reviews and one of the things that really stuck out for me is um the environment that subspecies takes place it's an environment that can't be duplicated on a sound studio there there's something inherently organic about being in these great locations uh can you talk a little bit about working in romania uh how that came to be and um kind of the tribulations of doing something that ambitious. Yeah, yeah. The subspecies came to me through Charlie by way of a guy named Jan Ionescu, who was a Romanian who had kind of left Romania 10 years before, come to the United States. And after the revolution in 1989 and the fall of Ceausescu, he wanted to go back and do business in Bucharest. And so he made Charlie an offer that he could put together a deal where the Romanian uh, film, uh, the, the Romanian studio called Bufta, would pay for all the Romanian costs of the movie, and Charlie would pay for the American costs. And so what happened was I think Charlie first went to Stuart Gordon and asked if he wanted to go there. And Stuart said, uh, declined. And so I was next <laughs> go. So he sent me there for a week to, um, scout locations and to meet some of the people that, that would be crew members on the film. And I went there and traveled around Romania, saw the locations met Vlad Paunescu, who uh, was going to be the cinematographer. Yeah. He was the DP on all the films, right? Yeah, he was DP on all the films, ended up owning Castell Film Studios that Charlie started over there. And his wife, uh, Juana, uh, who was his girlfriend at the time, she spoke a little bit of English, and Vlad spoke no English. Um, And we spent a week traveling uh, throughout Romania, seeing the castles and the, and the, the monasteries that we could shoot at. And I realized what an amazing opportunity it was to, to be able to film against such incredible backdrops. And the, the castle interiors that were kind of on a sound stage at Bufta were really incredible. Uh, and I liked Vlad a lot and what little we could, uh, talk. And I liked Juana, and 
basically went back to Charlie and said, yeah, let's do it. I can do that. And I realized at the time that it wasn't going to be like a production that you might shoot in Los Angeles where you have every, you know, benefit of every bit of equipment that you possibly could need. It was going to be like a kind of a chamber movie or something, you know, where we were going to be working with really shitty equipment and with old lights and not a lot of grit gear. Um, and the dollies were funky and the crews didn't speak English. Uh, but that we were going to be able to do something really unique. And so I went, you know, came back and we cast the film and then I went back over in the fall of that year and started doing pre-production. And it was, you know, Romania at the time was such a sad and desolate place. You know, communism had just robbed people of their incentive to work, had, you know, left them with, you know, nothing in the stores and not really good clothes and, you know, just like a depressed place that just drank way too much vodka. Uh, my friend is, my best friend, he's like a brother to me, is from Romania, and uh, it's still very much like that in a lot of ways, especially you know, the drinking. The drinking hasn't gone away. Yeah, they love to drink, and, you know, I, I like to drink, okay, so so I could get into that. Uh, but nowadays it's become much more like a real European place. You know, you mm. still find real backwoods places that are like they were, but even the even the places like um, like uh, Brashoff and things like that that were very kind of sinister and scary for us as Americans are now very welcoming. And, you know, back then you couldn't sit in a restaurant and have the waiters wait on you. You know, you could wait for an hour waiting to get fed and then your chicken would be bloody. And, you know, it was just a horrible, horrible experience. And when the actors came over, and we started shooting the, we did the first week and Charlie got the dailies and shut down the production and wanted to fire Vlad and start over again with Adolfo Bartoli, his Italian cinematographer. So I had these, the cast, like, uh, Honest, who's like a, at the time was a f dr hard drinking, volcanic tempered, um, actor. Uh, Michael Watson, who was, uh, even harder drinking and very kind of bipolar actor. And, the the two, the two actresses, American actresses, uh, Laura Tate and, uh, and Michelle, mm -hmm. like, you know, innocence. And suddenly they found out that from being there for three weeks, they were probably going to be there for a couple of months, and everybody, you know, I had nights of drunken, crying actors, and people begging to go home, and uh, it was, it, it was a nightmare. I basically, uh, very early on in the process, started keeping a journal uh, of the daily occurrences on the, on the film in pre-production and production, because I, I was going to go crazy if I couldn't somehow trans experience into comedy for myself so so i did this journal uh and uh it's for sale uh, but the so so what was the question again what the the difficulties of shooting in romania yes uh, uh, so so charlie shut down the production i had to go down and meet with this board of directors of the romanian film industry and and um support Vlad because I, I realized by then that I could never make this movie without the participation of a, of a Romanian who knows the score. And I really loved Vlad by that time and felt really close to him and mm. wanted. So, so I went and, so, and kind of defended them and got Vlad back on the production and things got back on track. Adolfo came to, to Bucharest for um, a couple of days and kind of basically provided some additional lighting gear and told Vlad to, you know, use backlight, a few little tricks like that that would make the production look more uh, like American high quality. So so then we went on shooting. The production went on much, much, much longer than it was supposed to because the crew kept not getting paid and then they would go on strike and the weather was crazy and it was freezing cold and the actors 
couldn't stand it because it was too cold. So it was really the whole thing was a like a nightmare from start to finish, but a nightmare full of moments of you know drunken sweetness with actors who were suddenly feeling better, or you know hanging out with Vlad or the Romanian actors who were just charming and brilliant. So so when we left, I was like, God, get me out of this country, and thank God I'm home. And then you come home to the United States where if you want to buy a bottled water, there's a million different brands, whereas in Romania, you could barely find bottled water on the shelves. Suddenly, life seemed completely out of whack to me. And the the moments of torture of Romania kind of fade in your memory and the moments of sweetness kind of remain and left me really wanting to go back and do another film there. And... and at this point, you decide to go back and do Subspecies 2. Um, was it always kind of your intention to abandon the relationship with uh, Michael and Laura's character? Or was that just kind of uh, an issue of convenience, basically? No, it was really... Uh... Getting rid of uh, Michael Watson was a, a matter of self-survival. Uh, he was really trouble, really trouble, and very difficult to work with. And very, one day he'd be really nice, and one day he'd be horrible, and didn't like his co-stars, and drank way too much, and uh, buckled at authority. And so, so I. I couldn't see doing the movie with him. Laura Tate was another story. She was really sweet, but she had a couple of kids and being away from your kids for months at a time, really young kids. And, and, um, there was like a, you know, somebody trying to get into her hotel room one of the last nights, Jeez. last of the shoot. And it, cr it created like this gigantic scandal and honest came down and like threw a phone against the wall of the, hotel and the police came and I was sick with, you know, like Ceausescu's revenge from like eating some bad food. And basically Laura just got on a plane, you know, a week before we were finished shooting with her. And so she left. And so basically when it came time to do number two, she didn't want to come back because of Understandably her so. Uh, so we had to finish the, the last week of shooting with a young Romanian girl and cut mm -hmm. her hair, Laura's. And you can see that some of the scenes where you don't see Laura's face, but she's in the scene was, was the, the double that we use. So, uh, those were the two reasons for Laura and Michael not coming back on us. I kind of, you know, on us as, as volcanic and scary as he can be as a person also has like the most, gigantic heart and is a great guy and a really great actor and so we got to be more and more friendly by the end of production and on number two i i said look honest uh we're going to do these two movies back to back uh no drinking on the set no drinking during the day uh and let's make this deal you don't drink during the day and when when the guys are taking off your makeup at night i'll come in and we'll share a bottle of wine, you know? So we made that deal and it turned out great and honest. You know, I, I can't imagine the series without him as Radu. And uh, to go off of that, uh, when you bring in Denise Duff, I just, it, it like, I, I really enjoy Laura's take as Michelle, but it, the film, the series itself takes on a different kind of, tone and and that's where you see the the humanization of the radu character he's still very much evil but the, the sordid kind of love between the two characters and uh, another theme that plays into the course of the film uh, the film series is uh the ties of family and the ties of love and and it being a constant war with those, uh, you know, in the first film, it's Stefan and Radu, and he has the feelings for Michelle. In the second film, it's Michelle and Becky and um, Radu and his mother, and they're both at war with 
the feelings that they feel and their attachments to their relationships with their family. Um, again, just really solid storytelling, um, for what, you know, some would dismiss as, you know, home video fodder, which I absolutely didn't ever. I always have taken this, this series incredibly serious. And, um, you know, it, it's, there's just something that Denise, I feel brought to the character Michelle that wasn't necessarily there in the first film. Uh, and that's no slight on Laura. It's just, um, Denise was given a little bit more time to kind of flush the character out. Would you say? Yeah, I think basically subspecies one, the character of Michelle is like a, is basically a victim and mm -hmm. uh, object of desire. Uh, whereas in two, three and even four, she becomes more active and, and is, you know, working to survive in a most difficult situation. So, and, and yeah, I think that, I, I think that Denise has a lot more capability to kind of take a character in that direction because she is a, a survivor and she is a real active person. And, um, doing two and three, uh, Bloodstone and Bloodlust, uh, back to back, did that make it a little bit easier for people to resign themselves to the fact that they were just going to be in Romania for these long jaunts? Uh, you know, I, I know that you had, you had talked, uh, especially about the first one and it taking longer than people were expecting, um, being kind of a, a reason for pushback. Uh, the, the people that were involved, with two and three, knowing that they were going to be doing these two films, is, is that easier? Yeah, I think basically we knew the schedule was going to be like probably 70 days of shooting. We were shooting in a, I guess it was summer. It was, was seem like, yeah, yeah, because we were there 4th of July. So uh, the weather on subspecies one was bitter ass cold and was really difficult to sustain. On subspecies two and three, it was beautiful summertime. We traveled a lot more throughout the country. Um, we had a bigger troop of actors too. We had Kevin, uh, was with us and Kevin is a real kind of sunny personality and he and Denise kind of kept it real happy. Uh, and, um, yeah, so somehow we were, uh, it was a much happier shoot overall. And one thing that I've I've always wondered, what was what was the Green Beret thing about? Uh, <laughs> like, like it, it, I, you know, I'm with it, I'm, I'm with it, I'm with it, and then you know, in comes this this special forces guy who uh -huh. scales this rock only to have a knife thrown into his forehead. Yeah. Okay, yeah, well, <laughs> sometimes you make mistakes, I guess. I, I felt like uh, none of the characters that existed had the ability to get into that castle. Mm. And so I, you know, had this other character and, had, you know, seemed like naturally he's a friend of Mel's at the embassy. Um, but, yeah, he kind of, he, he fails miserably at his mission, given all the firepower that he has. But the, he didn't know what he was up against, I guess, is the main thing. Yeah, but, uh, it's the, that's one of my favorite moments because he has this thing where he's just like, yeah, I got these silver bullets and here we got this and that. And here's some holy water. <laughs> it's just like, nope. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a way, it seems like I, I don't remember anymore if I, if I knew I was making a comical character there or not, but it, it seems like it fits in with the, uh, with like the Lieutenant Marine, the, the Romanian cop and that, that that's part of the humor, um, sly humor of the series too, I would hope. And, uh, with subspecies, the awakening and vampire journals, were those done kind of the same way that, uh, bloodstone and bloodlust were done kind of back to back kind of coinciding or no vampire journals. Let's see. Uh, vampire journals was done. 
near the end of full moon. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charlie said, let's do a vampire movie that's more about, Charlie has this obsession with gambling and gambling casinos, and he wanted to do something that was uh, more kind of civilized uh, cult of vampires. Mm-hmm. And the idea appealed to me from the point of view of, you know, getting to go back to Romania, finding a bunch of great new locations. Um, so, so Vampire Journals basically was born out of that idea of, you know, the vampires that own a nightclub and kind of in a way, because Charlie sent, uh, and that was, uh, Adolfo Bartoli by that time was the cinematographer because Vlad was kind of running the studio. Mm-hmm. Adolfo had been in Romania kind of teaching the crews how to work in a more Western style. And so I came over and Adolfo and I were friends from having worked on some kids movies together. And, uh, production of vampire journals and, uh, the production designer of Valley Kalinescu was incredible artist, incredible. And we found these great locations and had these, locations in our mind and then charlie ran out of money and couldn't start production but he kept me and adolfo in bucharest on per diem while he was you know rushing around trying to raise the money and so adolfo and i and valley had like you know two or three weeks to just pour over art books and talk about the lighting and talk about the sets and so in a way that film benefited from running out of money in that the look of the film I think is, you know, some of Adolfo's best work as a cinematographer. And even if the story itself is a, a little bit slow going, I think it's also a really interesting kind of movie and really looks better than some of the subspecies films. Um, subspecies four was done as like a, uh, I guess also near, at the end of Full Moon, or maybe this was when Charlie was starting his next company after Full Moon, because the budget was low, the schedule was shorter than ever before, and because the budget was so low, we couldn't travel, so we couldn't access some of the more spectacular locations. So in a way, the movie suffered a lot from the from the lack of budget, and so. Even I kind of like the film as a as a continuing story of Radu, but I know some of the fans that's kind of last on their list. And, and see, I really enjoyed uh, the film uh, in the sense that it started to play with different ideas. Uh, the the doctor character I thought was very unique, and you know it it also touched on the idea of. Uh, equating vampirism to addiction in a in a very interesting way. At least to me, that was uh, a takeaway that I had while watching the the, the film. Um, but you know, you you get Denise Duff and you get Honest in on the screen. You know, you're you're gonna have the core elements of what made those movies magic. Now, um, this you know that one didn't have the subspecies per se, but it, it still, you know, was a subspecies film. Uh, I, you know, you, you can tell while watching it, you know, oh, this person couldn't be, or wasn't going to be in the movie. So let's kill them in a car accident, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, but it, it still works in a lot of different ways. And again, you're, you're able to play with, characters that you know people had seen in vampire journals and make this almost larger world so it works on those levels and and it makes it all feel kind of tied together and you know one of the things as a fan that i always look for is you know and and it's now become very commonplace with uh you know, the Marvel films and everything is this idea of an expanded universe and, you know, things incorporating from other films coming into these. And, uh, that's one of the things that Full Moon has always had the luxury of doing. Obviously, you did, uh, Dollman versus the demon, uh, uh, Puppet Master versus the Demonic Toys. And, 
you know, so there, there is that level to it, but, you know, it, it is also, you know, very much its own thing. And I, I know that you had talked about, uh, potentially doing another subspecies film. Uh, is there any step in the right direction in terms of that? Uh, Charlie came to me, I don't know, four or five months ago and said, dude, we're going to do it. And, but he didn't really have enough money to do it like it should be done. And we mm. kind of proposed to Vlad, Hey, we're going to, we want to do it. Can you do it for this money? And Vlad said, no, absolutely not. Prices have gone up here. So, uh, we have a great script that is kind of the prequel, uh, kind of spanning the first 800 years of Radu's life. And it's a really good story that kind of incorporates Denise in a, as a different character. And, uh, and so all of us would love to do it. It's just a matter of finding an investor at this point, because I don't think Charlie is going to be in a position to, to do that kind of money. And is there any way that you guys would crowdfund something like that? Is that something that, um, people within the system kind of, you know, snub their nose at, or is that something that might be worthwhile for you guys to do in order just to get it done? Uh, I would, we have talked about it. We've got, um, you know, when, when we meet up at horror conventions, uh, and we've got some friends, Honest Erickson and Asia Erickson. Asia does those, um, the werewolf puppies. Um, yes. They want to do the, the effects makeup on the film. And so we've all sort of sat down and talked about crowdfunding. My feeling about it is, uh, you know, as, as like, um, passionate as the subspecies fans are about the films, I don't know how many fans that we actually have around the world that would help to crowdfund. And this movie's got to be, probably would cost $750,000 to make it uh at at the right in the right way. And so so that's kind of my thing is is I, I have a feeling our cult is is smaller than we wish it was, you know. And see, I I don't know. I I would I would disagree because yeah. uh whenever I bring up subspecies, I automatically have at least 5 people uh that just jump out of their seats with excitement because Again, you know, one of the, one of the luxuries of Full Moon is that they were home video releases and it was much more accessible to go down the street to your local video store and follow the further adventures of Radu and Michelle and, and be, feel like you were a part of that. I mean, if you look at, you know, the new puppet master, the littlest Reich, like that film, by all accounts has no rights to exist in this world. Like it, it, in this world that it just seems like it's, it's, it's almost like too much of a throwback for it to be real. And, and I really feel that that could happen for subspecies because it is to me, it's, you know, it's a magic film. It, it, and I would love to see something like, um, you know, drone work being able to be employed in yeah. the film and, you know, these, these new kind of cost cutting techniques that have been implemented over the course of time between the last film and now. Uh, I, I just, I'm absolutely interested in that. Uh, also the fact that Denise doesn't look like she's aged a goddamn day. Um, yeah. there's, there's so much that, would work about doing another subspecies film that I, I think if you guys, you know, put it out there, it doesn't hurt to put it out there. Yeah. Okay. I'll take that. I'll take that under consideration. And, and when we all discuss it again, see if we can find somebody who will take it on to do the, to do the crowdfunding thing, you know, if, if anything is taken away from this conversation and I'm able to convince you guys to crowdfund subspecies five, I, I fucking feel like I've, I've won <laughs> just by having this conversation. Uh, but okay. I could, I could literally talk to you for another hour about your career because it is 
so massive. Um, so I may want to have you come back on at some point, but we're gonna we're gonna start wrapping up. Uh, okay. Please tell people where they can find the book, uh, your your journal from the making of subspecies, and where they can find you in the world of social media. Uh, you can find me as Ted Nicolau on uh, Facebook. I'm there. Uh, if you, uh, it's T E D N I C O L A O U. Uh, if you get on there and message me, I I can um, hook you up with uh, one of the subspecies journals. It's a really funny, terrifying, amazing story of filmmaking under the most trying circumstances um, but it's funny as hell you know uh, and if you're a subspecies fan it chronicles every day in the making of subspecies the first subspecies uh, so you can find me on facebook you can find me on instagram as ted nicolau uh and um please friend me and uh ted on facebook has a photo of himself with a tiger which i'm now associating with roar so yeah, christmas, um, christmas bonus from roar <laughs> this is fucking amazing if you guys are here just for ted uh which i don't blame you but you've enjoyed the conversation uh thank you if you want to find out more you can do that in a couple of different ways you can start by liking us on facebook facebook.com forward slash creature pod you can follow us on twitter and instagram at creature pod uh, but that is going to do it for us. Again, Ted, I can't even begin to tell you how much of a big deal this was for me. Um, I really enjoy your work, and to be able to have had this much of a conversation with you really means a lot. Um, but that is going to do it for us. So for Ted Nicolau, and for myself, again, my name is Chunky. This has been another episode of the Creature Features Podcast on GeeksOfTheIndustry.com, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Listen with someone you trust.